Amen, amen. Well, let's pray, and I'm going to be selfish, and I'm going to pray for the message today, because today is a hard message as we talk about marriage and divorce. So would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you, O Lord, that you are a faithful and kind and amazing God. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you don't put things in Scripture to hurt us, but you put things in Scripture to make us more like you and to heal us, O God. Father, even those hard, tough words that are hard to swallow sometimes, I ask, O Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us receiving hearts today, that our ears would hear what you have to say, not what I have to say, but what you have to say, O Lord, and that we would respond accordingly to that. God, I come against any plans or schemes of the enemy to twist, distort, or confuse words. And Father, let clarity and truth reign in our midst today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, go ahead and grab them, turn them on, head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And as you're heading there, let me remind you, because we had a guest speaker last week, but last week, or sorry, two weeks ago, we looked at the importance of singleness, the calling of singleness. We looked at the first nine verses of chapter 7, and then we jumped, and we looked at verses 28 to 40, and I did that so we could look at all of Paul's words on singleness. And now this week, we're going to be going through the middle of chapter 7, looking at verses 10 to 16 today. And then next week, we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 24. But today, today's subject is on tough marriages and divorce. And if I could be honest, this is one of the reasons why I, as your pastor, am committed to expository preaching, verse by verse through the books of the Bible, because it forces us to not skip stuff like this. Although I have admitted that this would be the verses that I would most want to skip and just ignore. But we need to look at it because it's in the word of God for a reason and it will feed us, encourage us, and maybe even convict us. But I want you to know that I'm going to be as sensitive as possible today because it is a sensitive subject. But I'm going to strive to look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians in light of Jesus's words in Matthew 19. And then hopefully we can all walk away with a great understanding of divorce and remarriage and how God sees us. Now, I will say, and I'll say this periodically throughout the message too, that we are talking about casual, flippant divorce. We are not talking about situations where there are drug abusers, abuse, verbal abuse, sexual infidelity. We'll touch on some of that. But when I come down strong on divorce, we're coming down in a context of casual, flippant divorce that is running rampage in our society. Because it's, uh, 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 we, it's, divorce is a sin, and we have to admit that, and it's a sin that needs to be repented of, But I want you to hear this. It's not the unforgivable sin. But as we as Christians, we must take a firm stance on marriage. We need to protect God's design for marriage. And we need to fight against, as the church, against the epidemic that our marriages are facing in North America, where they say over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And and that's that's a high number of just casual, we quote-unquote, fell out of love with each other. And that's a very sad and sobering number. Or, yeah, number. And there is a time and there is a place for divorce, and we'll talk about that, but there's a time when, yes, things are tough. Yes, it feels like the love is cold. Yes, the season feels dry and there's lots of arguing, and people needlessly execute a divorce because of those seasons. When we are called as God's people, as men of God and as women of God, to do the hard work to make a healthy, strong, thriving marriage. God says to the husbands in his word, you are to love your wife and lay your life down for her as Christ laid down his life for the church. And he says to the women that you are to surrender or to submit to your husband. It's a mutual thing, working together to make a marriage work. And I know if I've asked every single married person in here, it's not easy, is it? Some days are hard. And it takes a real lot of strength not to just reach over and smack the guy sometimes, right? (laughs) 
It's hard. But remember what I said when I started this series, that I want you to come to me if you are confused, if you disagree, if something is not clear. I'm trying to get 15 to 18 hours of study, if not more, into 35 minutes, okay? So if you have any questions, I love your questions. If you have any concerns, bring them to me. And remember, though, as I said when we started the series on 1 Corinthians, I don't stack the, the, the pantry shelves of Scripture. I just get to go into the pantry, take out the, the, the ingredients, and serve you a meal. So if you really don't like the meal, take it up with the big guy upstairs. I'm just cooking what he gave me, okay? So, but let's, let's just jump into it. Divorce is tough, no matter the reason for it. If it's warranted to divorce or unwarranted to divorce, it is tough. I'm a child of divorce, so I can speak from experience there. I know it doesn't matter how much a parent tries to protect their children from the pressures of divorce, it's impossible. They can work on things, they can help in things, but it's impossible because there's something missing. It's painful for all involved. And some counselors even suggest that divorce, a marriage, should be mourned like a death. That's how serious it is. And I know that in this church, divorce has affected many people. And it's one of the most painful times in your lives. And it's something that you would have avoided if you could have. And as a Christian, you probably felt this weight more because the church historically hasn't been a very good friend to the divorced people. Right? We speak commonly as Christian as divorce is the unforgivable sin. That it's something that you can never really recover from. That it's going to be a stigma that travels with you for the rest of your life. And if, and if you haven't been divorced, maybe somebody in your family has been divorced and you have felt the effects of divorce. It, it's made gathering difficult. It's made conversations curbed and holidays awkward. Do we cut him out of the photo or do we keep him? We don't know, right? It gets, it gets a little awkward. And I say all of this because I want to encourage us as a church to go to Scripture with humility and courage and gospel hope that, that God is with us today as we enter into these hard waters. Do you believe that? God is with us today. And today's message is not just about divorce, but it's about marriage, tough marriages and conflict and how we can be better as a church at caring for divorced couples. But with that, let's read the Word of God today. Uh, it won't be on the screen right away, but it will be later bits and pieces of it. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be starting in verse 10, which says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but, it is, but as it is, they are holy. But if they, the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? May God bless the reading of his word. So if you were paying attention, you probably noticed right there in, in verse 1 uh, that he says, you know, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? That's an interesting comment. You might be thinking, well, isn't Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? So everything that Paul writes is actually what the Lord is saying. And if you have that thought, you are correct. That is true. But what Paul is doing here is he is not making differentiation between his opinion and God's inspiration. What he is doing is he is quoting an actual teaching that Jesus taught while he walked on this earth in Matthew 19. Jesus taught very clearly on divorce. And Paul is quoting Jesus' teaching, bringing to mind what Christ had to say on this subject. 
So for the rest of verse 10, he says, you know, I give this charge, uh, the Lord gives this charge that wife should not separate from her husband, uh, but uh, uh, should not, yeah, uh, they should not separate. And then he says in verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. It's pretty straightforward. But then he adds this in verses 12 to 13. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, we're going to talk about this in a moment, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and, he, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So here's the situation. Here's what's going on in Corinth. Uh, the gospel was going forward at an unprecedented rate. Some could even maybe call it a revival happening. And many were getting saved. But not every single person was getting saved. So some wives were getting saved, some husbands were getting saved, but their spouses were not. And then it became like a theological, spiritual battleground in their homes. And their spouses would mock them, they would antagonize them. So it's not surprising that there was a common thought that was floating around Corinth that this would be easier if I wasn't married to a spiritual deadweight. Surely they would say, God doesn't want me to be in a home where I have no spiritual support, where he or she is always dragging me down. Think about it, God. Just how much easier this would be if I was with somebody who encouraged me and built me up spiritually. And so for spiritual reasons, God probably wants me to divorce. That's what was probably being said, something along those lines. And Paul answers that logic in verse 13 and says, no. It's not better for you to divorce. It's actually better for you to stay, not to separate, for two reasons. Number one is the obvious one. Marriage is a covenant union that God established, whereby you promised loyalty and union to someone else until death do you part. And when Paul in verse 10 points back to Jesus and his teaching, that's the point he's making. Jesus taught, and Jesus taught it to, connected it to Genesis and said, this is the main point. God created marriage at the beginning to be a picture of his love to us. And it was a, to be a permanent union dissolvable only by death. And we're going to flesh that out in a moment. But the second reason why you are to stay married in the picture that Paul has laid out, an unbeliever to a believer, is because Paul expands in verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And then he says in verse 16, right? They could get saved as well. So what is he saying? Because at first read, that could be a very confusing verse. Like, what do you mean by being married to someone they are holy? Does that mean I can stay home from church and send my wife and still get to heaven on, you know, and not do anything Christian but just live off of her holiness? No, that's not what it's saying. What Paul is doing here is he's using a Jewish metaphor, so to speak, because the word holy in its purest form means set apart, right? We were set apart by God for God's work holy unto God. So in its purest context, it means set apart. And Paul is saying that the fact that you are in the house as a believer in the midst of unbelievers, your unbelieving spouse is now in your kids, if you have them, are now set apart to hear a special opportunity of the gospel and to see it lived out every day. Not every believer, uh, unbeliever has that privilege like someone who lives in the house of a believer. Your very presence in that house, Paul is saying, increases their exposure to the gospel message. And if you leave, you short-circuit that. He's saying it's a mission field. And there are countless stories about this throughout church history and modern history where there's one believer who gets saved and they stay faithful to Christ. They live out Christ in front of their family. They pray for their family. And over time, what happens? The whole family comes to the Lord. And then generations are Christians and they can pinpoint it back to because my great-great-great-grandfather gave his life to the Lord and prayed for us. It's beautiful. There's a great book called The Power of One, and it's all on that subject. If you are the only one, maybe that's your role today. You're, you're the only saved one in your house. It's not a glamorous role. It's not an easy role, and it might not be fulfilling for you. But God says, I have a purpose for you there in that marriage. Find happiness in doing the will of God and being his vessel of his purpose. 
even if it's not the greatest spiritual situation going on. But Paul doesn't end his thought there. He continues in verse 15. He says, but if the unbeliever partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here we see Paul making an exception to Jesus's rule of don't ever get divorced, teaching. And what Paul's rationale for why, and we got to ask, why does Paul have this rationale? Why does he think it's okay to make this exception? And you have to look and filter this all through that last phrase, that God has called you to peace. If an unbeliever in the marriage says, you know what, I can't take you Bible-thumping crazy person anymore. I'm going to get out of this marriage. I divorce you. you. He's saying you don't have to pursue them for the rest of your life. You don't have to chase after them. He says God has called you to peace. They have walked away from the covenant, meaning they have broken the covenant, and the covenant now is dead. God didn't intend it that way. That's why he just said, hey, stay there if you can, right? Stay there. But if the other party leaves, you're no longer bound. So Paul gives an exception to Jesus's never get divorced teaching, which begs the question, if we're thinking biblically, are there other exceptions? Or is the only justifiable reason for divorce abandonment by an unbelieving spouse? Well, to answer that question, we have to jump out of 1 Corinthians and we have to go right to the source in Matthew 19, which is the passage that Paul is basing this teaching on. And most reputable scholars, and I agree with them, they argue that the freedom that Paul felt in making this exception was found in the rationale of the exception that Jesus made in his teaching. So let's head to Matthew 19. We'll pick up in verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. Okay, now notice, what's the context? This isn't some couple that is on their last, you know, on their wit's end. They're coming to the pastor's office not knowing what to do. This wasn't an honest pastoral question. This was a theological trap set by the religious leaders. They were attempting to set up Jesus with a difficult question so that no matter which way he answered this question, he would be in trouble with someone. Okay, so they say that, they've come to him and they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And then he says in verse 4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I love what the King James says, let no man tear asunder. It just sounds cooler, right? So so Jesus' answer to this is no. It is not okay for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause, right? I just fell in love, whatever. Jesus then connects his reasoning to Genesis. And this is really important. Anytime you, you, we talk, uh, the Bible talks about gender, talks about marriage, talks about all, like, uh, the roles of men and women, they always connect it to Genesis because what they're doing is connecting it to how God designed things. And we shouldn't go against God's design. So he connects it to Genesis 2, and he says this is where God establishes marriage. He points out that God has designed marriage as a lifelong covenant, a union lasting until death. And no man or woman should ever dare to separate themselves from that union that God established. And in marriage, he says, God has made you one entity, one new body, only dissolvable by death. Okay, so let's look how these religious leaders respond. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're feeling pretty good, these sneaky little Pharisees, right? Or whoever, uh, religious leaders. They feel like they got Jesus. Aha, I've been waiting for this moment. We got him. Because uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 24, 1, he says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds, uh, sorry, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. It was a little easier back then to get divorced, I think. Right? So they are trying to pit Jesus against Moses. You say we can't divorce, but Moses said we could. They're trying to paint Jesus as a false teacher, and they're trying to accomplish this by making him go on record against the word of God. And that's a big no-no in Jewish culture. That will get you stoned. 
But let's see how Jesus responds. If you ever find yourself in a theological argument with Jesus, you're going to lose. I'm just saying that, okay? So he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, again, connecting it to God, from the beginning, it was not so. What he's doing is he's actually quoting something that was very well known to the Pharisees. Jewish scholars have long taught the difference between a command and a concession. A command is something that God wants everyone everywhere to do. A concession is something that God has allowed in the past because of man's fallen condition in order to keep the peace in society with people at various levels of maturity. This allowance for divorce, Jesus is saying, is not a command, and it shouldn't be treated as a command. It's a concession due to your fallen state, due to your sin, due to your hardened heart. And so in the Pharisees, they would have known this. This was a well-known distinction in Jewish law, which brings us to the second part of their trap, which concerns what Moses meant by something indecent, right? Moses said, if you find something unfavorable because you found something indecent, you, you could divorce her. So the question then is, well, what does something indecent mean? Because that's a pretty ambiguous statement. What does that mean, Moses? And there were two dominant thoughts in that day. The first was after a a, a Hebrew scholar, Rabbi Shammai, I'm probably saying it wrong. He taught that indecent meant sexual indecency. Meaning that Moses was saying that only if a man discovered if his wife has been sexually unfaithful could he divorce her. This would be the conservative, theological conservative position. And when I say conservative, I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking about a, a, type, a thought that our church subscribes to, that we believe that the word of God is the final word, that it hasn't been changed, it's infallible, it's unchanging, without error, all these things. And we take those positions here. And so this would be this guy. He was taking the hard conservative stance saying that indecent meant only sexual immorality. On the other side, you had this guy named Rabbi Hillel. He was a little bit more progressive, right? If he was alive today, he would have a man bun wearing Birkenstocks and say, no, I'm not drinking out of that plastic straw, okay? So the school of thought, championed by Rabbi Hillel, proposed that indecent meant anything you didn't like about her. Maybe she had indecent behavior. Maybe she had indecent cooking skills or indecent morning breath right? Whatever. We laugh, but here's a quote from Rabbi Hillel. There's a record of him saying, if she consistently burns the bread, divorce. If anything feels undecent to you, divorce her. If you fall out of love one day and decide the neighbor uh, lady looks better than her, divorce. Anything that feels indecent to you, Rabbi Hillel says, it's ground for divorce. And here's what you need to understand. Jesus, the majority of people in Jesus' time, would have held to the more liberal understanding of that. Rabbi Hillel's, where they are flippantly jumping to divorce over peccadilloes of sin. And they were very progressive in the negative sense. So the Pharisees know this, and they want to make Jesus less popular, right? Because what's happening? Jesus is gaining popularity at this time, and they're getting threatened by that, just like they were threatened by John the Baptist. And, they're, and, and they want to make him less popular by getting him on record, taking a hard line against divorce. And you have to remember, that's where the genius of their trap lied. John the Baptist was just beheaded recently for speaking out against casual divorce and remarriage. John the Baptist criticized King Herod for leaving his wife and taking his brother's wife and being influenced by a dancing girl and by the threat of John the Baptist's influence. He had John the Baptist beheaded. And he was in prison because John the Baptist was taking a hard stance against casual divorce. Divorce. So the Pharisees probably thought, look, if we can get Jesus to take a similar stance to John the Baptist, maybe we can get him killed too, or at least imprisoned. Look at verse 9. And he says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries an, uh, and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus came down pretty decidedly on the side of the conservative position, uh, the position of John the Baptist. And in fact, Jesus strengthens that position. Not only does he say, is it wrong to divorce someone because you just want out of that marriage, it's that if you divorce them, 
and then you get remarried after, he now considers your new marriage as adulterous, at least at the beginning, because in God's eyes, you are still married to that first person. Again, hear me clearly. We're talking about casual, flippant divorce. That was the context that Jesus is speaking into, as we just made clear. And we're not talking about divorce uh, because of abuse. We're not talking about a divorce because of sexual infidelity, anything like that. We are talking about just divorcing them because they keep burning the bread. Because their breath stinks. Thank God we don't divorce over breath stinks, because my wife would have left a while ago. So... <laughs> Jesus bases his position on Genesis 2. Marriage was de- designed, he said, to be uh, to, designed by God to be a relationship in which two lives are fused as one. As I explained before, in marriage, your names become one, your finances become one, your bodies become one flesh through the union of sex, your futures become one, and your families become one. Marriage demonstrates the unconditional love of God. You're saying, I am binding myself to you no matter how much you disappoint me and let me down. Maybe that's what we need to say at the altar. Not just till death do us part, but hey, I'm sticking with you because I know you're going to fail me in the future and you might fail me gravely, but I love you anyways and I am going to stick this out. This kind of unity in marriage cannot just be walked away from. Jesus, uh, Jesus says that, that this design by God was never to be a contract where you have a buyout option. I'm done. I'm buying out. It's a fusion where their li- your lives are fused into one, and it makes one new single person, one new flesh entity. That's why Jesus said in verse 6 that what God joined together, let no man separate. No comma. No dash, no asterisk, no fine print, no recommended reading, just period. What God has bound together, let no man separate. End of sentence. And Jesus had a totally different approach to marriage than most people in his day and most people in our day. Most people approach marriage as if it was a consumer relationship. This is where the problem lies. This is where the epidemic is starting, that we're going into marriage on the wrong foot. A consumer relationship is one where you figure out all of your needs, and then you try to find someone who's going to meet all those needs for you. And there's nothing wrong with a consumer relationship in its appropriate context. I have a consumer relationship with my grocery store. I know where everything is on the shelves, and they have good deals, they have what I need, and it's convenient to me. But I'm going on record to say as soon as a better, more convenient one opens, I'm gone. I'm Dutch. If I can save a penny, I'm heading. I don't care if it costs me more in gas. I'm going, okay? There's nothing wrong with those types of consumer relationships. But I can't have a consumer relationship with my son, Levi. Right? I can't go to him one day and go, hey, you know what, Levi? It's just not working out anymore. No, 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 it's not you, it's me. I've actually been hanging out with the neighbor kids and I'm a lot more happier with them. (laughs) No parent's going to say that because you know your relationship with your kids is not a consumer relationship. The relationship with your kids is a covenant relationship. You're saying, I'm not bound to you because of what you can do for me. I'm bound to you because we are family, because we are covenant together. So the question is, then what kind of relationship is marriage supposed to be? I'm really hoping you're saying covenant. Because the one who just divorces flippantly for no reason because they claim their desires have changed or they claim that they've fallen out of love or that person annoys them now, those people are entering into marriage with the false premise that this person is going to meet all my needs. And as soon as they don't meet all my needs, guess what? The love dries up because it was never truly founded upon a covenant intention. It was, what can you give to me? But God doesn't call us to have our marriages like that. Rather, we should wake up every day and say, what can I give to my wife? What can I give to my husband? How can I best serve him or her today? According to Jesus, marriage is a covenant in effect until death does you part. So if that's the case, is it ever okay to divorce? And Jesus says, yes, when there is adultery that has taken place in the marriage. Paul then expands that to say, when there's also desertion from an unbeliever as well. 
And the question you should be asking then is, why those? Why are those exceptions? Well, we have to look at the logic of what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying because it's very important. Because what adultery does and what a desertion does is it does the same thing. It kills the covenant. When a spouse unites themselves to someone else sexually, they have destroyed the one flesh covenant with their spouse. So the person who is cheated on is no longer bound. They can move on. They don't have to. That command in there is not saying, hey, once they cheat, you have to leave. Don't ever read it that way. It's just giving you the option. You can stay. You can fight for your marriage. Many have. And many have thriving, beautiful marriages despite the sexual transgression. Some even say that their marriage is better now than before. I don't know. That's just how God works, I guess. He can do amazing things. But the Bible does say, technically, you are no longer bound. And you have freedom to part ways. Same with if your spouse deserts you or divorces you, they have killed the covenant. Paul is saying you are no longer bound to that covenant. You're free to move on because in both cases, God has called you to peace. So maybe you're asking, well, what if there was no adultery? And what if technically there was no divorce by an unbeliever? But one spouse is abusive or maybe they're involved in some illegal activities that that they're refusing to quit and it's bringing and putting serious risk and harm on your family. Let me just say this. Get yourself out of that situation and get yourself out of that situation as quickly and as safely as possible. And if you need help, we as a church will help you get out. And if you truly feel unsafe, call the domestic violence hotline. Call them and reach out. Seek help and safety. That's of first importance. Okay, now I'll answer the question whether divorce is an option in that situation. I would argue, and most scholars on this subject would argue as well, that the logic that Paul and Jesus' exceptions also allow for divorce when a spouse is doing something that makes them unable to be lived with by putting your kids or yourself in danger, be it verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, or drugs, gangs, alcohol, those types of things. In the same way that adultery or abandonment has killed the covenant, living in an abusive way does too. By the logic of 1 Corinthians 7.15, you are no longer bound. Now, what this doesn't mean is that you just wake up one day and find your spouse annoying, or you claim that they have changed, or that you've fallen out of love, or you're just not doing it for you anymore and you want a newer model. No, what this is saying is that it's arguing that anyone who has killed the covenant because they're being unsafe, that is giving you grounds. But the big point that I want you to get from this, because this is not what Paul is talking about, nor what Jesus is talking about, but we had to address it. We are talking about casual, flippant divorce. So the big point that I want us as a church to get from this is, from the beginning, God established marriage as a covenant, not a consumer relationship. Two become one, and divorce is as radical as amputation. It's as radical as amputating an arm or a leg. But here's the thing. Amputation is sometimes necessary to save a life. But any doctor would be run out of the practice if he or she was flippantly jumping to amputating things. Oh, you got a hangnail? Cut it off. You got a sprained ankle? Let's cut that sucker off. You won't, it won't struggle with that anymore. Oh, you want a tattoo removal? Sure, we can do that. But have you considered amputation first? Right? Like, no doctor is going to do that. So, yes, there is times when amputation is necessary, but it's a radical step and it it causes a lot of pain. Think about it. You cut a leg off, you're going to have to relearn how to walk. It's going to take a lot of work and it should be the last option that you consider after everything else has been tried. So let me, with the last few minutes I have, answer just two questions that that I think might be helpful. The first is, whoops, How do I stay in a difficult marriage? And if I'm divorced and I am remarried, how does God see me now? Well, let's hit the first one. How do I stay in a difficult marriage? I said it a few weeks ago when we were talking on the importance of singleness, and I'll say it again, especially with Hallmark movie around the corner, okay? That season's coming upon us, okay? First, you need to reject the perfect person myth. 
which says that there is a right person out there for you and a good marriage is only determined by you finally getting it right, that the stars and universes align, then you finally meet the right person. If you don't find that right person, guess what? Your marriage is going to suck. Suck it up. It's your fault, right? And if you're married now and you're unhappy, it's probably because you made a mistake when you were younger. And at first you thought they were the cat's meow, but now you see that in your 20s you were dumb and you married the wrong person. And if you could just get out of that relationship with that person and into with a different person, you'd finally be happy. But the truth that I told you a few weeks ago is that you always marry the wrong person, no matter who you choose. First, because you and her or you and him are sinners. And that means you're going to disappoint each other and hurt each other throughout your marriage. It's going to happen. Second, you and her, you, you and your spouse change over time, right? I said last week that counselors say that if you make it to the age of 70 married and none of you have died yet, you've been married to five different people over the span of that time because you change and they change and you're supposed to change. Finally, you always marry the wrong person, so to speak, because God's purpose in marriage was not restoring the missing part of your soul in another person. That's not what marriage is. That's what Hallmark is going to push you. That's what the world is going to push you. You need to find the one that's going to complete your circle. The missing piece that you are longing to fill in your life is found only in Jesus. God's main purpose in marriage is not to make you happy with the perfect person. His main purpose in marriage is to teach you to become more like him by faithfully loving and forbearing with an annoying sinner like he loves and forbears with you. And he does that by having you marry an imperfect person. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, one of my favorite books on marriage, he says, marriage is not as much about making you whole, uh, happy as it is as much as making you holy. Right? I can tell you, I pray every day and I never miss a beat, but you ask my wife and she'll say, no, he missed today. <laughs> I can lie to you all I want. I can't lie to my wife. She sees me every day. Marriage makes you holy. I'm not saying that you can't, that you can't be happy or truly in love with your spouse. You can. I so love and, I, and I'm so happy with my wife, but we can't look at marriage as something that it was never designed to give you. Marrying someone new won't fix your emptiness. It won't cure your problems. If you're single and you're lonely and you're sad and depressed and, you're, and whatnot, if you get married, guess what? You're still going to be lonely, sad, and depressed. It doesn't automatically change anything. Now you're just going to have someone nagging you because you won't get off your video games. <laughs> marriage won't solve all your problems. It probably will just amplify them. Why? Because now you have all his problems or all her problems. But that's the point. We're working these things out. So reject the myth to find the perfect person. If you're ever wondering, am I married to the right person? Go home, grab your marriage certificate out, read the name, and go, oh, I am. I am married to the right person. Thirdly, do it for Jesus. The covenant you made in marriage was first and foremost to him. If you weren't even a Christian when you got married, marriage is still designed by God and created to be done in his name. I have a friend who went through a difficult portion of marriage. They went to counseling and his wife looked flat in his face and said, I'm not here because of you, I'm here because of Jesus. Eventually they repaired their relationship and they have a wonderfully caring and loving marriage today. But sometimes it's simply just your faith in Jesus that keeps you going. You may not feel in that moment that that person standing next to you, laying next to you in bed, is worthy of your continual forgiveness and faithfulness, but Jesus is. Jesus is. Picture Jesus behind your spouse. Respond not so much to your spouse, but to Jesus. You see, we usually get divorced not because we fall out of love with our spouse, but because we fall out of worship of Jesus. You may not feel in that moment that that person standing in front of you is worthy of your forgiveness or your continued faithfulness, but Jesus always is. Thirdly, this is really important, soak yourself in God's grace. What precedes Jesus' teaching on marriage in Matthew 19 is his teaching on forgiveness. 
Jesus tells a story about a man who was forgiven a large, unfathomable num- uh, amount of money, right? 10,000, and that's the highest number in the, in the Greek uh, numbering system. So it was his way of saying he was forgiven an affinity amount of money, right? He was given this, let's just say for a number's sake, $10 billion. And the day came when he had to pay that $10 billion back. And he's sweating. I don't got $10 billion. And, the, and the, the guy who lent him the money says, no, 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 I forgive you of your debts. Go on your way. And then what does he do? He runs, he sees the guy over there. Hey, I gave that guy $1.50 for a Coke last week, and he hasn't given me that money back. Throws the guy in jail over a buck fifty, let's say. And up to that point, Jesus is telling the story, and his listeners are sitting on the edge of their seat going, wow, this is amazing. And then he says that part, someone throwing someone into jail over a small amount of money, and they roll their eyes. Nobody would throw anyone into jail over that small amount of money. And that's the point of the story. Jesus is saying, if you are struggling with unforgiveness in your marriage, unforgiveness in your friendships, in your life, chances are you've probably lost all concept of how much God has forgiven you. You and me are the person who was given $10 billion and then forgiven of that debt that we could have never repaid. And nothing that anyone does to you or does to me could ever come close to what Jesus has forgiven us of, of what we have done to God. And when we realize that, that changes our heart. Now, I'm not minimizing your pain. I, I, I believe your pain is real. You've been hurt. You've been betrayed, whatever it might be. What I'm saying, though, is when you become aware of the greatness of God's grace, even to us, it gives us the resource to deal with those who disappoint and hurt us. In Matthew 19, when Jesus quotes Ma- uh, Moses' concession, they say, why did Moses let us get divorced? He says, because of your hardness of hearts. That's why. It wasn't always like that. It's because of your sin. Ultimately, it's our hardened hearts that kill the marriage. It's not the fights. It's not the frustrations. It's not the lack of fulfillment or whatever you might fill that blank in. It's your hardened heart. All those other things, the fights, the frustrations, the whatever, are fruits of your hardened heart. And Jesus, this is the gospel, Jesus can soften the hardest heart. Do you believe that? Pray for your spouse daily. Lord, soften their heart. Pray for your heart daily. Lord, soften my heart. Finally, the apostle Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 7, do it for others. What does that mean? Well, Paul urges that spouses stuck in an unfulfilling marriage to an unbeliever, he encourages them to lift their eyes beyond themselves to the positive effects of remaining in the marriage that they will have on their, other, their spouse and on their kids. You probably don't need me to cite the stats about devastation that divorce has on kids. But children of divorce are four times more likely to have social problems, two times more likely to drop out of school, three times more likely to need psychological help, five times more likely to be unable to keep a job. One secular, non-Christian marriage counselor says, yes, you should stay in your marriage for your kids. By the way, these stats do not apply where marriages where they have abuse or anything like that because children fare far better in safe environments. Remember, sometimes you have to cut the arm off. It's necessary. It still causes pain. still have to do a lot of work, but it's necessary. I'm talking about in an environment where parents are just divorcing because they have, quote, unquote, fallen out of love or some other stupid westernized version of what love is. The other thing we have to consider as believers is what does divorce communicate to our kids and to our community about the love of God? When we walk away from marriage because we're just unhappy or we tell, we communicate by our actions that God's love is conditional, that it's not unconditional, that when we annoy or disappoint God or make him unhappy, he leaves us. The world desperately needs to know and see the patient, steadfast, never giving up love of God in our marriages are supposed to display that to the world. I don't mean to make this devastating, but I do want you to feel the weight of God's word. The healing power of God's grace is amazing, church. I know divorced people that are experiencing God's incredible, sustaining, renewing power after the divorce have happened. 
The grace is that God can take our mistakes and then he can rewrite any of our mistakes with beauty. Divorce doesn't mean that the best part of your life is over. But the fact that God's grace is amazing, this is a warning, should never cause us to take lightly the damaging powers of sin. This is Romans 5, 6, and 7, right? How does he end 5? He says, should we sin more to get more grace? And then he starts off 6. He goes, no, don't be dumb. I'm quoting. Paul doesn't write that way, right? So we don't sin more to get more grace, but the purpose of those passages are to show us that no matter how much we screw it up, no matter how far we run from God, guess what always abounds? His grace. Do you believe that? That's a big one to believe. We can say that with our, our mouths, but it's hard to make belief in our hearts. Lastly, before I answer the last question, is get some counseling. Reject the stigma that counseling is wrong. Embrace counseling. There's nothing wrong with it. Don't treat marital problems like cancer. Right? You want to go to the doctors long before it gets to stage four. Once you know something's going wrong in your body, get to the doctor. Once you know something's going wrong in your marriage, get to a counselor. Don't leave it. Work on it. And not just professional counseling, which you need to go, pastors, unless they've went through training on it, are not professional marriage counselings. We're biblical counselors. Go to a professional Christian biblical counselor, but also look around this room, especially at all the gray tops, and I mean that nicely, because they've been married for a long time, and they have been through almost everything that you could imagine. And I know nothing would make them more happy if you went up to them and said, hey, I see your marriage and I, and I love your marriage. Can you help me? Give me some advice. They will give you advice. We need to be better as a church at intergenerational mentoring. Amen? Okay, I'll leave it there. If I am divorced and remarried, how does God see me? Uh, as I said at the beginning, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Look what God says in Jeremiah 3.8. He says, uh, talking about Israel and Judah, she, uh, she saw that uh, for all her adulteries and for the faithfulness one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and played the whore. Now, of course, there is no sin on the side of God in this divorce because there was unfaithfulness on the side of Israel and Judah. But maybe there was sin in your divorce. Maybe you did sin gravely in your divorce. Hear this. In the cross, in the resurrection, Jesus puts away the sin done by you and he overturns the sin done to you. On the cross, he bore our sins in his body. And when we believe that, when we believe he's died for us, he transfer, our sin gets transferred to Jesus. First John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Divorce is included in that. The resurrection is God overturning the curse of death and destruction brought on by our sin and infusing the power of new life in the dead tomb of our heart. The empty tomb is the answer to the empty soul ravaged by divorce. The empty tomb is the answer to the empty soul ravaged by divorce. So maybe throughout looking at scripture today, you are sitting there realizing that you've made some terrible mistakes and you've committed some sins in the course of your divorce. You can't change that now. It's like toothpaste. Once those things happen, you squeeze it out, you can't get it back into the tube. But the good news of the gospel is that those mistakes don't mean that God is done with you, that he can't use you. Let me show you something awesome in Matthew's recording of Jesus' genealogy. In Matthew 1, Matthew 1 is sort of Jesus' 23 and me. I kind of just made that joke for Bev. And he shows us that a number, one, a number of relationships in Jesus' ancestry were compromised relationships. There were sexual sins, broken marriages. One of Jesus' great-great-grandmothers was a former prostitute. And all of these things were terrible, painful, and I'm not trying to make light of them, but out of all of that mess... God brings Jesus. So what's the point of that? Well, one of those relationships that Matthew points to part of Jesus' ancestry is David and Bathsheba. Think about the brokenness and the tragedy that is surrounding that relationship. David sleeps with Bathsheba and then has her husband murdered. You don't get more jacked up and messed up marital brokenness than that. Yet after David repented, not only did God forgive them, but God brought forth at a later point from David and Bathsheba, Solomon. 
And Solomon ultimately would come the Messiah. I love what Tim Keller says on this. He says, what does this mean other than God is trying to say to us all, I love redeeming the worst situations. I love redeeming the hardest cases. Go ahead, try me. God can bring beauty and redemption even out of your biggest mistake if you trust him to. And you might say, well, Aaron, my spouse hurt me. My spouse took something from me and has hurt me bad and that I will never get back. It's not fair that they don't have to pay for their sins. They seem to be getting off scot-free and that's hard for me to handle. Is there no justice for me? There is. And I'm not trying to be lighthearted about your pain or what happened but I always like to think of Uriah in this situation, Bathsheba's husband. Bathsheba, uh, Uriah was loyal, faithful, subject to his king, and then his king sleeps with his wife and has him murdered. Imagine after all of that, Uriah's been murdered, he's in heaven. This is me, this is not the Bible, I'm just, just picture this. And God gives him a window into what's happening on earth. And he sees what's happening with David and Bathsheba, and he goes, no, God, no, you can't bless them with Solomon. You can't give them Solomon, then he gets to be an ancestor of Jesus. My wife was murdered. Or sorry, my, he slept with my wife and I was murdered. Imagine, I imagine God giving Uriah this vision of a mysterious man hanging on the cross and saying to him, that man on the cross is paying for David's sins against you and your sins against me. And Uriah responds, well, who is that suffering man? Who is paying for that sin? And God says, that's Jesus. Not just David's son, but my son. And after he suffers and dies for David's sin and for your sins, I am going to breathe life into his dead body so that I can show that I can overturn every cursed thing for good. Even this. Church, write this down if you're still taking notes. In the cross... We find forgiveness for the sins done by us and healing for the ones done to us. And in this part of our lives, we can all say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved an unfaithful wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Amen? Trust the Lord. If you're in a hard marriage, pray, fight, don't give up. Call on to your friends. Get support, get help. And know that God has given you the strength to overcome everything that is thrown at you in this life. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I thank you for all those here before me. And God, I just pray that, first and foremost, that you would inject grace into their marriage. Father, that you would fill them with fresh vigor and, and, and a sense of renewal in their, in their marriage, God, that would give them strength to say, yeah, I don't feel like I'm in love right now. Yes, things are hard. Lord, I want to give up. But God, I'm going to keep moving. Give them the strength. Father, allow them to lean on their brothers and sisters in this room. We need the church in these hard times. And Father, this is why you've given us the church. Father, let us be better at how we speak to our brothers and sisters who are struggling in their marriage and those who have divorced, O oh Lord. And let us be people that bring reconciliation and healing and not more harm and pain, O oh God. Us sheep, we like to bite a lot, but Lord, let us be like our shepherd who heals a lot, oh God. We thank you, O oh Lord. Protect our marriages. Strengthen our marriages, O oh Lord. And Father, those who are coming up to be married in the next little bit, Lord, Father, may they look to our marriages and be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.